You would have a procedurally just prison when you have people who are incarcerated that feel as though they're being treated with respect, they're given a chance to voice their concerns and have those concerns meaningfully considered. The Ethicist Corner, a new podcast brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Welcome everybody to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we talk about ethics in everyday life. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Callie McCullough, who is an assistant professor of criminal justice at CSU Bakersfield, and also recently announced, we're very excited, is uh, the assistant director of the Kegley Institute of Ethics. And Dr. McCullough's research interests include procedural justice and legitimacy, criminal justice policy analysis, sentencing, and corrections. And her recent research examines the correlates of successful reentry among formerly imprisoned individuals with emphasis on the perceived legitimacy of correctional authorities. And so we'll be talking some today about uh, Dr. McCullough's research uh, on incarceration. Um, so it should be a fascinating conversation. Dr. McCullough, welcome to the Ethicist Corner. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. It's uh, uh, awesome to have you here. So to start, so for our listeners who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, uh, tell us about your background. Uh, where did you grow up? So I actually grew up on the other side of the country in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which most people know it for the Plymouth Rock, and it's known as the place where the pilgrims landed. Okay. Is that a, a small town, big town? What's it like? Yeah, it's pretty small. I, I think it's smaller than Bakersfield. Okay. I, I'm not sure of what the exact population is, but yeah. maybe yeah. a medium-sized town. Okay, yeah. So um, how did you become interested in criminal justice? Kind of what, what drew you to this line of work? So I first became interested in criminal justice when I took a criminal justice class in high school. And part of that class, we did a field trip to a local jail. And that's when I found out what it was. I, I was able to experience the environment in in our local jail. Every day on my way to school, I would drive by, I passed the jail, and I never really thought much about what was going on behind those closed doors. And when we went on that field trip, I was able to see um, a person who was stuck in a tiny room peering out through a a little window. It couldn't have been more than 12 inches by four inches and their face was smushed in peering out at us students walking through the jail and it, you could see that they were desperate for contact with people on the outside and uh, a few of them were shouting out to us saying hello and the corrections office the correctional officer's response to that was to actually reprimand them for yelling out to us mm-hmm. And so I saw this environment of total control, and it was really eye-opening. I never had experienced that power dynamic before in my life. And it was really surprising to me how little I knew about this secret world. And from that initial spark, I continued to study criminal justice in college, which eventually led me to where I am today. Right. And so now, I mean, your your research focuses in part on you know, students, people, people kind of re-entering society once they left prison and including, including students, right? And I think one of, the, one of the really cool things about being part of the CSU system is the Project Rebound program and, and several other initiatives that actually try and work to help 
formerly incarcerated students to be successful in getting a degree and, and taking next steps in their lives. But for those who don't know, like what are, you know, what are some of the challenges to reentry for this population? So people who are leaving prison and trying to move forward, what are, what are some of the challenges that they face? Well, they face challenges in every aspect of what we would consider our normally, normal livelihood. Formerly incarcerated individuals struggle with strained relationships uh, with family and loved ones. They face stigmatization, unstable housing, unemployment. Education is also a part of that, which Project Rebound is an amazing program that helps address that need. Uh, they also struggle with interpersonal skills, accessing healthcare and receiving the kind of substance abuse and mental health care that they need. Uh, even uh, things like their body adjusting to the food that's different. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that really, I, I never really thought about, but when we interviewed guys who were returning from prison back into the community, that was one thing that stuck out to me. He said, my stomach hurts every single day because I'm trying to get used to the food out here. So from your digestive system to everything around you is impacted um, when, you're, when you're leaving prison and coming back into the community. So yeah, it's interesting. And you, you also think about like, you know, in your, in your research correlates and things that help support successful reentry. So mm -hmm. you kind of just mentioned some of the challenges, both large and small. So what are, what are things that actually can be helpful for people um, in trying to reenter society after being incarcerated? So it would be uh, anything that would address those challenges during that transitional phase. So Project Rebound is a great example of linking students with uh, CSUB and other CSU campuses to fulfill uh, educational attainment of getting a college degree. And that can help with later on down the road, uh, job applications, um, in employment programs that help formerly incarcerated individuals be linked with employers who are willing to hire people with criminal records and they look more based on your skills rather than uh, any criminal record you might have. Those are helpful. Uh, any kinds of social services where you're helping formerly incarcerated people find stable housing and um, healthcare and counseling that they might need those are all um, correlates or helpful programs for successful reentry. Right. So, I mean, this, and I can see all those making an impact. And, you know, one thing I think about, though, when I think about the incarcerated currently and formerly, and something I've, I've learned about some, both, I mean, so I, I've taught in prisons um, off and on for many years. Actually, my first teaching experience was in a prison in Eastern Shore, Maryland, um, teaching philosophy, and I've kind of continued that work going forward. But one of the things that stuck out to me then and still sticks out to me now is, I mean, the way that stigma functions mm -hmm. in society, right? And that happens in lots of different ways, right? I mean, there can be stigmatization of, of lots of different social groups, but certainly the incarcerated are a stigmatized group, like kind of like a literally unseen and unheard group. And then that can continue when they get out. So what, how do you think about that? Like, I mean, like with stigmatization, like the things you're talking about procedurally can help concretely, but how do you actually work against stigma like how do you how do you think about that in your work not that you can solve it all but like what well, what you know how do you think about that yes that is a a problem that's ingrained in society 
And if I had the answer to quickly solve that, I would be working on it every hour of the day. Very unfortunate that we do have that stigma in our society. You know, that's one of the concerns that incarcerated people have when they're leaving. Uh, when they meet new people, they wonder, when are they going to find out that I was in prison? And they have that, they carry that with them every day. And that's something that people who've never been to prison don't ever have to think about, right? That's usually how stigmas work. Yeah. But I think that it's, it's going to be a slow process. And one of the things that I can do and, and we can do collectively is to think about prisons and think about the people inside of them and realize that they're, they're normal people too. And uh, if you ever get the chance to meet anybody who's been formerly incarcerated or listen to their stories, I would highly encourage you to do that, to just listen. I think that's our, our first step in addressing that stigma. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, listening, empathy, and right, mm -hmm. understanding experiences of others, right, is kind of crucial for that. And, and some, it sounds simple, right? But sometimes it's hard to make that happen because it's just easy to kind of write people off and not, not think about their stories. And also there's complexities there, right? Because I've thought about that too in teaching in prisons. I mean, I, just to be frank, it's like your, the work actually, some of the best, best teaching experiences I've had have been in prisons with incarcerated students, it's particularly in the philosophical context. I think there's just lots of amazing uh, insights that people who are incarcerated can bring to philosophical questions and also they have a lot of time to devote to studies if they want to and can actually view it as very vital in their lives as opposed to an academic exercise, for example. But at the same time, there's those people who have done you know, pretty horrible crimes, right, in, in, in prison. And so there's kind of a, I think, grappling with those realities. But I think after the people who are grappling those with more than anybody else are often the incarcerated persons themselves. Like they're very aware of kind of what happened in their life and and often very willing to talk about it and understand kind of mistakes that they've made, which I think is really important in that work too. Yeah, exactly. And we need to think about what is prison there for? Is it to punish people for the rest of their lives or is it to punish them during a, a time that's proportionate to the crime that they've committed? We can't, you know, sentence everybody to death. We cannot sentence everybody to life without parole. There has yeah. to be some compromise. Yeah. So are there are there ways that you've seen like your work like the stuff that you've written on or or talked about um that's been collaborative with actually not just say formerly incarcerated students or current inmates but actually people running prisons like do you have conversations with them are there things that you feel like you know maybe i could see your work maybe sometimes maybe be threatening to them but like maybe not i mean how, do, how does that how does that partnership work for you yes so in it, it depends um I'm not going to lump every prison or correctional official into the same boat, but it depends yeah. on who you're working with. Some individuals, uh, you know, just like anybody, will be stuck in their ways and not be open to progress, and others will be. They'll be open to what the research says and how they can make evidence-based practices that can reduce violence and can reduce misconduct and can um, achieve rehabilitation. And like, so you, you do work too on, um, I mean, I think the way you phrase it is ethical treatment of the incarcerated and its impact on incarcerated individuals' attention to or desire to follow the law. Um, so can you say more about what that means? Like how does that, what, so 
is, is it basically how inmates are treated while in prison actually has an impact on how much they are motivated to be law-abiding once they get out? Is that the idea of the research? Yes, actually. It, uh, so in, in my research and a few other studies that have been done looking at the role of procedurally just treatment in correctional facilities, we see that there's an effect on, uh, well, let me just describe what a procedural just treatment would be. Um, you would have a procedurally just prison when you have people who are incarcerated that feel as though they're being treated with respect. Okay. They're given a chance to voice their concerns and have those concerns meaningfully considered. They trust correctional officials and they feel as if they're treated fairly. When we have those elements in a prison setting, we see that correctional officers are seen as being more legitimate in their authority and incarcerated individuals are more willing to follow the rules in prison. So it reduces violence in prison and misconduct. They're more willing to cooperate in investigations. And the effect that we see in the community isn't as strong, but that makes sense of like reducing recidivism in the community. Because I mean, when you think about it, how a correctional officer treats an individual in prison isn't probably going to matter as much to the person who's re-entering society because they have all those other challenges that they have to deal with. So how they were treated by that one correctional officer isn't going to be on the top of their mind. Mm -hmm. But one area of research that I'm exploring further is how can parole officers, how can their treatment influence the success of people who are formerly incarcerated and on parole in the community? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I really relate to that. It's it, it strikes me as kind of this like relational idea, like basically kind of the how you treat others, right, also impacts how people view themselves and how they're going to act. In the way. I, mean, I think about that with students a lot, right? So if you treat students like with respect and as if they are competent people with ideas to share, lo and behold, often they'll think of themselves as somebody who, is, who does have ideas to share and, and will be more willing to do so. I mean, it's not like a magic thing. It happens like right away. But I think it's, it's maybe you're saying something similar about the incarcerated. Like if you, if you give respect, you treat in an ethical way, there's a certain type of empowerment and respect that can come out of that as well. That's, that's, that's better overall. Yeah, absolutely. The theory behind this can apply to any settings where you have somebody who's in power leading others. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me ask you this. Like, let's say, you know, we had, we had a fictional, we open up the phone lines to the ethicist corner. We don't have phone lines for the ethicist corner, but let's just hypothetically say we did. And Norma, our Maverick producer, is manning, is manning, personing the calls. I'm not going to say manning. I'm not going to get gendered. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and a person calls in and they say, uh, Dr. McCall, I love your research, um, but why I'm, I'm a skeptical um, Bakersfieldian and I'm skeptical about why we should be worried about ethical treatment of people who have committed crimes, some maybe relatively minor, some very severe. Uh, why should I care about that? I mean, uh, don't they deserve to be kind of, kind of locked away and, and, and why should I have empathic or ethical concern? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's one of the most challenging aspects of this kind of inquiry that I have. And I, it, it goes back to, you know, are people willing to think about what the research says and implement the findings? Um, but also, why should we do it? Because 
just simple. It, it doesn't cost any money to treat people with respect. So that's a great policy decision. Yeah. Right. Um, and as something as simple as that is ensuring that uh, people feel safe in prison, that they feel like they can talk to uh, prison officials. Something as simple as that can, re we see it actually reduces violence. So we could prevent the loss of life of correctional officers and other people who are incarcerated just from something as simple as treating them with respect and giving them a chance to voice their concerns. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, yeah, there's good practical reasons there and similar arguments that are made for, similar criticisms come up about education. Why should we devote educational resources to the incarcerated? And I think there's both ethical reasons, but also even practical reasons, including reducing recidivism rates, for example. Um, and there is good data that shows that. Um, you know, another thing that comes to mind for me is I can't remember who said this. I'd like to give due credit, but no person's life is defined by their single worst act. I always keep that in mind too. Like even when we're working people who have made tremendous mistakes, a life is not one action. And there's, I think there's rehabilitative insight that comes from that too. Um, and aspirational, you know, possibilities, no matter who you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it goes back to the stigma. Can we get over the stigma in our society where we think if you've been to prison that you'll be bad forever? So let me just say this. So you you're just joined us as, as assistant director and super excited to have you as part of the team for the Kegley Institute. So uh, for those who don't know, this is kind of a, a really substantive addition to our institute team. And we're really excited to have Callie come on board in terms of her work with criminal justice and ethics and uh, uh, program development. So um, Callie, can you talk a bit, like what's an example of a program that you run at CSUB since you, so you've been at CSUB for two years, correct? Right. So what's an example of a program that you've run that maybe people have heard about or not, and, and that you thought this was a cool program that I was excited about doing? Um, so I've, I've always enjoyed everything I've been doing with the Kegley Institute of Ethics, with the uh, ethics across the curriculum. I was involved with the Ethics Bowl in uh, Tehachapi Prison. And uh, I'm also involved with some other uh, campus organizations, the Organization of Women Leaders, where we put on events that celebrate women leaders. And uh, in the criminal justice department, we have a lot of panels and events uh, on campus to raise awareness of criminal justice issues affecting our society, such as gun violence in our community, mm. changes in bail policy, juvenile justice reforms, and you know, access to prison education, just to name a few. Fantastic. And like, are there, you know, given this is, you know, you're, this is a leadership role, um, and of course you've had leadership opportunities before, but this is one where you'd be working with people all across campus and in the community and developing new programs. Are there, you know, we think about leadership a lot in this podcast. So are there, are there people that have been influential for you that kind of have helped you think about your leadership style and how you approach the work you do? Yeah, of course. Um, I've been fortunate to have had opportunities to work closely with several people in leadership positions. Um, my mentors, Dr. Richard Wright at Bridgewater State University, Dr. Michael Vaughn at Sam Houston State University, and here at CSUB, Dr. Doris Hall, uh, just to name a few, they were all in um, criminal justice department chair positions. And from watching what they do in their leadership positions, it's really become clear to me that a good leader is measured more by the successes of the people that they lead rather than their individual successes. Mm. 
So I think being aware of and responsive to people's needs is really an essential quality of leadership. Yeah, well said, well said. Maybe a last question about this. So like what, uh, for our listeners, what is uh, an example of maybe a program or, or area of work uh, that you're interested in taking on in your new role? I mean, obviously criminal justice is something that you're very interested in, but is there an example of a program or, or something that you're interested in developing? Yes. So for KIE, there's two main programs that I'm really excited to be working more on and developing or expanding. Um, first is the KIE Student Fellowship, and uh, this year, this coming year, I'm going to be working with Natalie Velasco. I'm going to be mentoring her. She's our one of our KIE Student Fellows. Um, she Her project is to develop a peer mentoring program between students on the inside and those on the outside of prison, and I'm super excited about that project, and I can't yeah. wait to see the results. It's fantastic. Um, but that ties into my involvement with the other project that KIE has, which is Humanities Beyond Bars. And I'm very excited for this, uh, although we might not have the same gatherings, I think we're gonna have to do virtual stuff in the fall, but uh, with Humanities Beyond Bars, we're focusing on community conversations and events, uh, about the effects of incarceration, uh, continuing the ethics bowl in prison, the event that we have slated that I'm very excited about and looking forward to and curious to hear is the event on the history of incarceration in Kern County. Yes, uh, that's that providing that historical context. I'm looking forward to that too. Yeah. Um, should be a fascinating one. And yeah, it's definitely excited for all these programs too. And, and also, I mean, just for reference for our listeners, the Ethics Bowl uh, program, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a form of like ethics debate that uh, CSUB, Dr. Nate Olson has been a leader on that, where we actually have a ethics bowl team that competes inter, you know, with intercollegiate competitions, but they also every year compete with a team of incarcerated students at the Hatchby prison. Um, it's been a really fantastic prison, so we're looking to grow that too. So fantastic. So Callie, thanks so much for talking with us about your work. It's been it's been really wonderful. Um, we we have this tradition in the podcast called the lightning rounds, where we have five questions that just help our listeners get a better sense of you and your interests and and things like that. So the, the first question is, what is the last movie you saw and would you recommend it to others? It was Joker. And yes, I would recommend it. It was a good psychological thriller. Yes, Joaquin Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, good, good. What is the first thing you want to do once the stay-at-home order is lifted? I am going to immediately go to the gym and work out all day. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I think we probably all could use that. Yeah. Um, if you could have dinner with anyone, past or present, who would it be and why? I would love to have dinner with Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, because I just, I love the way he talks about astrophysics. And, you know, I'm not an astrophysicist, but I, I just love um, the way he talks about the universe. Awesome. What, what is your favorite thing about working at CSUB? My favorite thing about working at CCB is mentoring students. And I find it most fulfilling to help them with their research and discover graduate school and uh, all the different career paths that they can take. And last but not least, what is one thing that people who have spent no time in prisons um, misunderstand or don't know about prisons? This is a really tough question because there's, I think, a lot of things that the general public doesn't know about prisons. Feel free to say more than one if you want. Yeah, so um, there's a lot that happens behind that iron veil, but I think the biggest misconception uh, that people have is that they think people sentenced to prison will never get out. Mm -hmm. And 
in reality, nearly every person who's sent to prison will get out. And we really need to seriously think about what we want that process to look like. What is best for the victim, the offender, the offender's family, our community, and how can we best prevent future violence? Well said, thank you. So um, Callie, it's been really wonderful talking with you and um, really looking forward to working with you as, as a part of our, our community and team. And thanks for all the great work you're doing already. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be in this position and thank you for having me on The Ethicist Corner. I love this podcast. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you for your support of The Ethicist Corner podcast. Be sure to listen and join us next week for a season one recap episode featuring Dr. Michael Burroughs and me, Norma Hernandez. We will share our season highlights and ask for feedback from you, our audience, and community as we look ahead to season two. 